Would you please turn with me once again in your Bibles to the letter written to the Hebrews, the 12th chapter, where this morning we will be looking together at verses 3 through 11 of that 12th chapter as we continue to make our way through this wonderful Christ-exalting epistle of sacred scripture. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. And this morning, as we continue to make our way through this letter, the writer wants for us to see that indeed you and I, indeed all of God's people have been declared the sons and the daughters of the Most High God. We are sort of led here to pause and to consider the unfathomable blessings of God that are ours because Almighty God has said that He is our Father. And there is a stirring comparison here to aid us in our understanding of this blessing with our own earthly fathers. Fathers are truly a great and glorious gift from God the Father, the Father of all fathers, the Father from whom all of fatherhood derives its very name and its meaning. The absolute best earthly father that you and I can conceive of in our mind is, of course, but a faint, dim, flickering reflection of our heavenly father. So when we look to the word of God at the perfect fatherhood of God, we usually can walk away seeing not only the inconceivable love that God has for us as his children, but we also have a model for those of us who are fathers and those of us who are children of fathers as we live out our lives in these relationships. We know that we always do it imperfectly. We are part of humanity, fallen in our father Adam. So we do even our most noble deeds, even our very best parenting, knowing that the stain of sin is still over everything that we do. We do it motivated by an earthly love. Yet God fathers us with a love that transcends all of the earthly copies. This morning I'd like to look at one area in this life that God shows to us his love for us as his children. And hopefully it's an area that those of us who are fathers also show our love for our own children. And that is this area of chastisement. Or discipline. We show our love for our children when we in fact discipline them. And even more so, we see the love of God poured out upon His children when we are not simply left to wallow in our sin. But we are disciplined. We are corrected. We are rebuked. We are chastised because of our sin from the loving hand of our Heavenly Father. It is the mark of a son or daughter who is loved by his or her father. And when we are in the process of being chastised, we often get so focused on the struggle that comes along with it and bringing any suffering that we might be enduring to an end that we can easily miss the love that lies at the very root of it does not matter what stage of life we are in, 
This is just part of our fallen nature that in our rebellion, we tend to think of chastisement as something that is always negative. We associate it perhaps with hardness, with difficulty, but rarely with the tender love that really should be the foundation of any and all discipline and is of course always the foundation that lies under the perfect chastisement that we who belong to the family of God receive from his loving hand in this life. Divine chastisement from the hand of our Heavenly Father is a mark of our sonship. It should not lead us to despair, but when properly understood, it it should assure us of just exactly who and what we truly are in Jesus Christ. When properly understood, it should lift the heart to singing, to rejoicing, rather than crushing the spirit to weeping. When understood, it should move us into grateful service, rather than lead us to stoic misery and resignation. The truth that this shepherd of these discouraged sheep knows and seeks to convey to both them and to us is that we are all in desperate need of this kind of grace from the hand of our Heavenly Father. We are all people who are immersed in our own sanctification processes, being molded and pushed and poked and prodded more and more into the image of Jesus Christ in this life. We all need desperately to grow in our maturity, in our knowledge, in our wisdom. It's not enough to simply know things. We must learn through the guidance of the Holy Spirit that only God's grace will take what we know and employ it in a way that transforms our very lives for the glory of God. And beloved, I want to tell you, there is no teacher that chases away our own foolishness like divine discipline. And I think we'll see in this text before us this morning that there is perhaps no more reassuring thing in this life than to clearly see the hand of God correcting us, trying us even in the furnace of affliction, where we will learn that the only thing that we lose in that furnace is the dross that weighs us down as we run collectively the races that God has set before us. All of us who are the true children of the Father of all fathers, our Heavenly Father, have so much to be thankful for, to know that God marks those who are His own through His loving discipline. And so it's with that being said that I'd like to ask you to follow along now in your Bibles as I read from the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 12, Again, I'll pick up with verse 3 and read through verse 11. Hear now the word of our Lord. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your own souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin, and you have Forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son 
whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as would seem best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for your word. We ask that during this time that we come before your word together, that you would clear our hearts and our minds of all of those things that distract us, that we would set aside the hectic schedules and the busyness of this life, and that as part of our worship, we would come before your word and give it our full attention that we may be transformed by it more and more for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the author of this letter to the Hebrews has just made a very, very powerful statement about how we as Christians are to live in this world. In verses 1 and 2 of this 12th chapter, he says, Therefore we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And you'll remember that this great cloud of witnesses is, of course, testifying to the unyielding faithfulness of Almighty God in bringing about all that He has promised in His Word. He has set the courses to be run. He has placed His children at the starting line, and He will see them through to the end of their respective races. These Hebrew believers, as we know, were men and women who were in the very throes of suffering a great deal of persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. And the writer is here making the point that they are to run the race of this life focused intently on Jesus Christ alone. He who had faithfully run the race perfectly before them. He who had endured the very wrath of God being poured out upon himself in our place, despising the shame of the cross, walking headlong into a violent death, all for the sake of his church, for the joy of reconciling his bride and preparing a place for them in the glory of heaven, where he even now sits at the right hand of the Father, where we are told he actively intercedes for his sheep, as they run their own respective races to the glory of God. Because of Jesus, 
We who are the true church have been made the sons and daughters of Almighty God through adoption in Him. He has declared that He is our Father and that we are indeed His legitimate children. Though this life is difficult, though preparation for glory is certainly straining upon our flesh to say the least, our difficulty pales in comparison to the difficulty of the greatest runner to ever run the race of this life. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who endured the cross for us. Not only the physical pain, but even the shame of it. It's something that no mere man could ever bear. And though we often deal with suffering in this life, we know that's a fact, The writer makes it clear from the outset that our suffering is really nothing when compared to his who endured the very wrath of God being poured out upon him for the heinous sin of his people. That's my sin and your sin. Our sin received the full penalty of the law of God. And rather than being poured out upon us, Jesus Christ took that penalty for us in our place as our substitute. And of course, I'm talking about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are a child of Almighty God this morning, you never tire of hearing it. This is the depth of the love of God that He would send His only begotten Son to die in our place, to endure what we deserve in order to reconcile our relationship with Him. Really, it gives us all particularly good reason to celebrate the love of God this morning. It really should fill the child of God with gratitude. It should drive us to our knees in prayer to our loving Father who has saved us, not because of what we are, not because of what we will become, but despite it. Beloved, this truly is our motivation in worship. And really, all of the difficulty in this life fades into the background when we firmly wrap our minds around this primary, altogether glorious truth. We must understand this before we can get to the heart of the passage that is before us this morning. Let me make it a little bit clearer. Before you and I can consider and reflect on the love of God that is manifested in His loving chastisement of the redeemed, our sanctification, we must know how it is that we became sons and daughters of God in the first place, our justification. We must understand our suffering in this life living as the children of God, living in these fallen bodies, living in this flesh which is at war, with the Spirit of God within us. We must understand it all in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only then that we can ever even begin to understand the encouragement that is found in something like the discipline that we receive against our own sin in this life. It's the distinction between our justification, which is an event, And our sanctification, which is equally declared by God, but is worked out as a process in this life, always preparing us for final glorification in eternity. 
We've talked about both in this very epistle before. We've spoken at length about them in our look together at Paul's epistle to the Romans. Our justification is that legal declaration made by God the Father who, as judge, sees in those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ covering their sin. And so he declares them legally to be not guilty by reason of Jesus Christ's righteousness. It is Jesus Christ and his perfect obedience, his suffering the full penalty of the law in our place. It is his righteousness alone being imputed to us that allows for us to be justified. And we have to understand that before we can even begin to understand something like our sanctification. Our sanctification is then that process of having sin rooted out of our lives in this life as we are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. This is the point being made here. Because we are justified... We can run the race of this life knowing that we are surrounded by those who have run the race before us who are all testifying to God's loving faithfulness which always leads us to the finish line. Our focus is not to be upon the problems, upon the sufferings, upon the persecutions of this life, but upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because we are justified by faith and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are to remain locked entirely upon Him. We are to look to Him who is the author and the finisher of our faith. The one who suffered far more than we could ever imagine, far more than we could ever hold up under. Once we firmly grasp that we are truly the sons and daughters of the Most High God in and through Jesus Christ, then we can begin to wrestle with the marks in this life that always accompany those who are the true children of God. The marks of the one who by the grace of God is being sanctified. This is what this writer has done in this letter. He began with the excellencies of Jesus Christ, And only after having fixed their eyes upon his glory does he begin to move into this area of how we should now live. And immediately we see that the Christian life that the writer is espousing here sounds terribly different from what so much of the church in our own day is used to hearing. Do you see what this passage does to some of the pernicious error that exists in the church today? Allow me to just mention a couple of them. First and probably most relevant, I would say, in the evangelical church today, is the many different shades of the false gospel of prosperity teaching. The teaching that equates material success in this life and perfect health and lives that are flowery beds of ease with the righteousness of faith. Your material comfort in this life is directly tied to your standing or to your relationship with God in this system. If you just believe, if you just trust God, then you can, as they say, have your best life now. I've mentioned it before. And I want to tell you, I'm not doing it to pile on anyone. I'm doing it because it is the lie of Satan that is flying off the books of our Christian bookstores. 
championed by men with names of reputation, names like Joel Osteen and his ilk. Righteousness is evidenced by ease, by wealth, by a life that has been very clearly materially blessed. And in that system, well, sin, we're not going to talk about sin because sin is negative. And God wants for us to be positive. It's only when we see that God wants to make our lives clean and comfortable, overflowing with material comforts, that we can leave negative terms like sin and suffering behind. Look forward, not behind. It really is the American evangelical way of life. Pursue comfort and run from anything that comes remotely close to hardship in this life. I want to ask you something. Do you believe that is the teaching of the Word of God? Of course not. In fact, as we've seen throughout this letter written to these Hebrews, it's the opposite. Chastisement in this life that comes through suffering and persecution and all manner of discomfort does not exclude us from the household of God. But often it marks us as the sons and daughters of our loving Father who loves us enough to correct the errors of sin that so permeate all of our lives. It shows us that He loves us. He loves us enough to protect us in our sin from destroying ourselves. Do you see that here? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. The Lord corrects us. Not because he is angry with us in his damning wrath, but because we desperately need correction in order to live for him for his glory. Do you understand? It is his love that moves us into his discipline. And I want to tell you, we need it like the air that we breathe. And he does not withhold it from the child whom he loves. We in the church cannot afford to set aside negative words like sin because we cannot afford to forget the fact that we are indeed sinners who stand in in desperate need of God's grace. And our loving God never simply turns his back on our sin. He corrects it. He rebukes it. He works it out of our lives for his name's sake. Why? Because we are his children. We are actively loved by a father who will not sit idly by and watch his children destroy themselves. We do this in our own lives, do we not? Fathers, who of you does not correct the errors of his children? When our children do something foolish, what do we do? Well, if we love them, we take every effort to remove that foolishness from their lives. We know that our children's lives could be at stake, and so we discipline them in hopes of returning them to a path of wisdom for their own good. And let's face it, for our own good. 
A foolish son will bring shame upon his father. I'm not going to bore you with my stories. I've told you many stories of the monumental task that my own father had in chasing foolishness from my life. But I want to tell you, he did it. Not just because I embarrassed him with the folly of my exploits, but because I was placing my very life, my continued existence in the world, in danger with my foolishness. I needed to be disciplined. And though at the time I hated the discipline, I've come to the place in my life where I will never doubt my father's love for me as a son because of the presence of that discipline in my home growing up. That's why we discipline. We don't discipline just to throw around authority. We do it because we love our children. If you neglect it, it's not an act of love. If you do not, the word of God says that you will not love that child. Rather, by withholding discipline, discipline that's needed, like food and clothing are needed, you will prove that you hate them because you withhold from them the very thing that they need. Proverbs 13, verse 24 says, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. If you withhold discipline from your children, you've set your heart not on their comfort, but ultimately on their destruction. You've taken the path of least resistance, the broad and the easy road. And the writer is helping us to understand God's love with this comparison. He never withholds from us what we truly need. And yet we also see that in many ways there really is no comparison between these loves here, is there? Earthly fathers have mixed motives to say the least. Everything we do is tainted by the self-serving desires of our own flesh. We seek to preserve the fleeting lives of our children in a world that is disintegrating by the minute. God seeks to give us what we need for eternity. Yet God uses even this comparison to bring us to that place of perseverance and assurance and the very real hope, a very real hope in His deep and abiding love for us. Do you see that if this is what we as earthly fathers, as imperfect fathers, do for our earthly children, how much more we see the love of our heavenly Father for His children and the chastisement of our sin? Earthly fathers do it to an end of their own, as seems best to them, verse 10. And the children who endure that discipline become a glory to their fathers. They receive his inheritance, they represent him in this life, they bear his name in the world. How much more do we see this with the children of Almighty God? The father of all fathers, the perfect father. Our, our lives are not easy. We're not left to our error to wallow in the sin that so easily ensnares us in this life. We are being corrected. We are being rebuked by our Heavenly Father. And though that discipline is often painful, we ought to be joyfully receiving the blessing of being marked out as the sons and daughters of our Most High God in this world. Beloved, do you see the glory in that? Do you understand the love of God in your sanctification? 
The love of a father who does not turn his back on our error. He does not turn his back on our sin, but he roots it out of our lives. He is glorified in our turning away from the sin that's being corrected. It speaks to our legitimacy as sons of the father. You will remember that I said that this section refutes some of the errors that exist in the church today. And I've mentioned one that may or may not seem to be pretty far removed from us as Reformed Christians. It may seem like an extreme case to some of us, but I think it's probably a lot more entrenched in our own lives than any of us care to admit. We all approach this life at times as if the only thing that really matters is our comfort, and so we approach comfort in this life as the supreme goal of a life that is well lived. We're all probably a little bit more worldly than we like to admit. So it may not be as far removed from our thinking as we would like to admit it that, that it is. But I will humor you this morning. If you think that the example of pros- the prosperity doctrine of a guy like Joel Osteen is still very far removed from your Christian life in this reformed, doctrinally sound church. So I'll mention another that maybe you will agree is a little bit closer to home. And that is the belief that somehow our justification and our sanctification are really one one in the same. This is the wrong-headed idea that we are justified in Christ, and because of it, God the Father does not care to see the sin that so easily ensnares us in this life. His only concern is final standing in Christ, and so he just takes a blind eye approach to the way that you and I live our lives. I want to tell you it's born out of an overreaction to legalism and moralism. We look at the grace of God in Jesus Christ and we say there's nothing else to do. We simply trust that no matter how we live this present life, we're forgiven in Christ And we now have license to do whatever we want with no bearing on this life or the life to come. Right? It's the the classic caricature of Calvinism. And any outspoken Calvinist has heard it leveled either against him or herself or at someone else at some point. We know it is incorrect, but at times I wonder if some of us still do not hold to it in some degree. Or at least some degree or another. It shows up in our lives looking like this. We end up downplaying the sin in our lives as just being part of this fallen body as if there are never any repercussions for anything that we do. In the end, we take the same approach to the seriousness of our sin that Osteen and his counterparts take. Sin is not really that big of a deal anymore. Christ died, the penalty has been paid in full, and though I still sin, God doesn't really care about it. Right? Sound familiar? Maybe you're even now on full alert wondering if I'm maybe just barely placing too much of an emphasis on sin. Maybe you're starting to wonder if I myself am not toying with moralism here, if not full-fledged legalism. Are the people of God still supposed to be serious about the sin that so easily ensnares them in this life? Well, beloved, of course we are. Our sin is an offense to our Father in heaven. And He loves us enough 
to never simply turn a blind eye to it. In fact, we can't ignore our sin because he chastises those whom he loves. Do you hear the word of God this morning? I hope if you're struggling amid the loving chastisement of your heavenly father, that you do hear the word of God this morning. And that you of all people find hope this morning in the word of God. You are loved as a child of the most high God. And it is his love for you that will not let you remain in the sins that plague your life right now. He is disciplining because he loves you as his child. And though it's painful, There could be no greater display of his love than that. Because brothers and sisters in Christ, you who are justified, you have been adopted as the children of the Father. The Father from whom all fatherhood derives its name and its meaning. And because we live this life as the justified children of our loving Father in our fallen flesh, with these sinful natures, we are being sanctified by the loving discipline of our Father, and we are being prepared for glory. We're never just left to glory in our sin or to try and bury it deep and ignore its presence in our lives. But because of the love that he has for his children, our sin is dealt with. We are being chastised for sin. Are you being chastised for sin? Is the the loving hand of God rebuking you? It's funny because we seem to understand this concept so completely when we see it in other people. When we see a brother or sister Christ in Christ undergoing difficulty and it seems to us as if they are being chastised and we cannot wait to point it out. We, like Job's counselors, get in line to find out what they did wrong. We need to be less worried about the chastisement of those around us and far more concerned for our own or for the lack thereof. If we indeed see it in our lives, let us praise God that he has marked us out as his own through Jesus Christ. And because we belong to him, we know that he will not ignore our sin, but that he'll correct and rebuke us for his own glory and for our own desperately needed sanctification as he weans us from this world and prepares us for glory in heaven. But if we do not see it, if we only see it in the lives of everyone else and we know that our lives are full of sin and that we've lived with it and we've been able to hide it from the eyes of all of those around us, then I want you to hear the word of God this morning and I want you to really think about what it says in verse 8. But if you are without chastening of which we all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Do you hear the warning here? The struggle is a sign that you belong to Almighty God. If your life is a flowery bed of ease and there's no struggle with sin or your, your thoughts or no struggle at all in your life so that your self-righteousness becomes that well-tended garden that defines you, do you not need the loving hand of your Father because you do not need the loving hand of your Father because you have it all figured out? In your world, 
Do only the wretched ones, the real reprobates and sinners out there, struggle in this life with suffering and affliction and doubt and persecution? If that is you, I want you to listen to the word of God this morning. Your best life now does not mark you as being in the favor of Almighty God, but it may very well mark you as illegitimate. As one that does not have God as his father, but will absolutely come to know him as judge. When you receive the full wrath of the full wrath of God, the just punishment for your sins poured out not upon Christ, but upon you in the day of judgment. Beloved, I hope that we will all take another look at the law of God and see that we too are wretched and sinful. That we too are only justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone because of his righteousness alone. Being sanctified in this life, being marked out as the child of the father of all fathers is a blessing. Beloved, let us glory in being the sons and daughters of our heavenly father. Who cares for us that even, who so cares for us that even the number of the hairs of our heads is known by him. And who would never hate his children. By looking the other way from their sin, the sin that so easily ensnares them in this life, but who is graciously, mercifully rooting it out for his glory, marking us as his legitimate children and as the heirs of every blessing in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Let's pray.